Hey, Upper Room Rewards, Sabanda here, and uh, I'm excited to share this word with you called the Dancing God, right? This is a word to every single person that's ever doubted God's love for them. God intentionally crafted an entire universe around this simple premise that he is madly and extravagantly in love with you. So I hope this blesses you as you listen to this and as you share this conversation called The Dancing God. Let's get it. All right, there we go. Man, we're about to have a party, but it's going to be an African party because that's where your boy is from. Come on, somebody. So if you don't already know, I'm a Hollaback communicator. You know what I'm saying? I'm a Hollaback preacher. So if I'm, it's not rude at all to interrupt. You know what I'm saying? I know I see a lot of vanilla up in the house, but if you have a black church fantasy where you scream at the preacher while he's preaching, this is your house, man. And uh, that's what's up. Hey, I wanted to introduce you guys, but he's back there sleeping. I was going to bring him up for a second. But my firstborn son is here, y'all. Son of my right hand, son of my strength. Uh, his name is Silo. Everybody say Silo. That means lion. That is our totem name. Silo. Silo says Zulu. Silo Samavanta. That's his full name, y'all. So, uh, man, that's his full name, but I just wanted, there he is. Come on. Oh, man, bring it up here for a second. What's up, baby? That's my boy right there. Listen. He's such an old soul, so Pam dresses him like an old soul. She dresses him like she wants me to dress, you know what I'm saying? She's like, I wish you'd give up the black, but there he is. He's a serious man. He's going to be a theologian. And he's going to preach the gospel, aren't you? Awesome. Can you guys do me a favor? Can you just stretch your hands in for 30 seconds? Just speak a blessing over my boy's destiny. Come on. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for Silo. We thank you that he's going to preach the word. He's going to be man of the presence. The culture of pursuit that is over this house is going to mark him for the rest of his days. We thank you that he will represent the Father accurately to a generation. And so we bless you. And we thank you for the lion in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for what that looks like. Hey, I got a few friends up in the house. There's Kim and Sean. They are my friends from San Antonio. I just wanted to say, hey, thank you guys so much for being here. When I was in San Antonio, y'all, Kim was like a mother figure to me. Uh, me and Sean's birthday is about, about a week apart, but she would always do our parties together. So remember when I went over there, like, it didn't have nothing, didn't have health insurance, didn't have this. One time I broke my hand, and I still remember I took two little twigs and I tied like charging cable around it. I was like, I'm gonna be fun. But she was like, no, we gotta take you to a hospital. And it was just one of those things. So every Thanksgiving, I appreciate you guys for all of that, man. Love you guys, and thanks for being here. They were at our wedding, and uh, y'all are family for real. Our cousins are here. Hey, Naki. How's it going from D.C.? They're visiting uh, over here, and uh, so, so, so cool to be here. My baby moms, you already saw her. What's that, girl? Man. But, hey, I just want to say I love the ethos in this house. I love the culture in this house. I love the simple fact that the orphan spirit cannot breathe in this atmosphere. And that is simply because this is a fathered house. This is a covered house. This is a grounded house. This house is in alignment with the plans and the purposes and the government of God because we have an incredible governing body of elders that aren't just that way in name alone, but they step up, they show up, they love, they pray for and they celebrate. So if you could help me, could you just take a second to honor the elders of this house? Come on, I see the Galindos over there. There's a lot of them. God bless y'all. Love y'all so much. Uh, I love our staff at the Upper Room. We have the most incredible pastoral staff over here. I love Rev Kev, one of the most humble, brilliant individuals you could ever work with. I mean, he is a G and a Jedi, y'all. Love him, uh, love, every, love uh, Peter Slover and his incredible wife. Love Aaron. If you haven't got Big Jesus yet, make sure you don't just get a copy for you, but for other people as well. Pastor Keisha is going to be bringing the fire tonight. So if you don't know, oh, it's going to be fire, y'all. If you don't know, make sure you are watching or you are here. 
But listen, none of that, right? Leadership always flows from the top down. A culture always flows from the top down. That would not be the case. We would not be such an established house. God would not entrust us with the hearts and the philosophy of a generation around worship and engagement and encounter and pursuit if it was not for our mama and our papa, our father, our pastor, Miller and Larissa. Come on, somebody. Here's what I'd love for you guys. Can you stand up for a second? And can you keep going until he blushes? Don't stop until he blushes. Man. Come on. Miller, you have been so consistent in your pursuit of God from over 10. Stay standing, guys, if you don't mind. From over a decade that I've known you, your posture has always been on your face before the Lord and pointing a generation towards him. And on top of that, you're the most empowering, most loving, most, um, man, most everything leader anyone could wish for. Like serving under you has been the greatest honor of our lives. So I just want to say thank you and Mama Lo for your yes and for everything that you guys do. I appreciate it. One more time. Can we just, uh, you know what to do? You know what to do? Come on. Boom. All right, we're in Texas, y'all. Everybody say Texas. Stay standing, Texans. Come on. And in Texas, um, there's two things I like about Texas. Number one is that we are a state that has a common sense and abundance. Everybody say common sense. And because of that, we stand for the things that we honor. Come on, somebody. It's not politics. It's common sense, right? And the second thing is that we have something that you call family style. Whenever we go to restaurants, they bring the sides family style. If you don't know, that means they just keep bringing the sides and you share them until you drop. You know what I'm saying? I believe that's going to be the catering uh, philosophy in heaven, y'all. They just keep bringing it. So, but I love that, right? The family value is so consistent in who we are. And so I would love for us to read this scripture, my context scripture, together family style. And then I'm going to say a quick prayer and then we're going to jump into uh, our conversation. We're going to be reading from the book of Revelation 5 or 6 to 14. If you guys have it, if you see it, say I. There it is. And I want you to read it like you believe it. I want you to read it like it is the authoritative uh, voice of God, that there's eff efficacy behind when God speaks and there is. So at the count of three, you guys ready? One, two, three, let's go. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Give me more, give me more. Encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Come on, somebody. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Come on, somebody, Father. Come on, just thank him, thank him, thank him for that. Thank him for everything that he's done, that he's purchased you for himself. And so, Father, we bless you for the sacrifice of your son. We thank you for the intentionality of your pursuit. We thank you for this glorious picture of our origins, but also our destination. And so we say, come Holy Spirit. Can you just put your hand over your heart and say, come Holy Spirit. 
Just say it one more time. Come Holy Spirit. So we invite you, blessed teacher. We say, Holy Spirit, if you come, then nothing else matters. And if you don't come, then nothing else matters. So come. Come and lead this conversation. Be the CEO of this meeting. Do what only you want to be done. But most of all, bring a radical, life-changing revelation of Jesus. Receive it. And we thank you for the counsel of heaven. Finding perfect expression through imperfect lips. We ask and we thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Can I five the person next to you? Say, let's roll. And you may be seated. <clears throat> so when Miller hit me up and he was like, hey, uh, bro, I'd love for you to bring the word to, to, to our family. Right, um, I'm a son of this house. I've been away on the father's assignment, just kind of preaching in different spaces and everything. And so when Miller hit me up, I think 90% of our conversation with Miller is like emojis, and 80% of those are fire emojis, right? I'm like, what do, you want to, what, what do you want me to talk about? He's like, man, just bring the fire, bro. Just drop the fire. And I was like, ooh, I think I got some fire. Come on, fire. But I still remember I went to the Lord, and uh, I mentioned a little bit of this yesterday, and I was just kind of praying and going, okay, Lord, what do you want me to say? And he was like, I want you to take a word to a community in a state of transition and, and, and flux. And I want you to bring a word of perspective around the simple fact that they are about to be put on assignment in a particular area where the demographic doesn't match the primary demographic of the people that are there. And he says, whenever you are sent out to take ground, right, there is spiritual warfare that encompasses that assignment because the very nature of territory taking means you don't just pick up territory, someone else or something else is occupying what that is. So a kingdom belongs to our father and the earth belongs to him, but it is occupied presently. And that's why the assignment is always to go and take more territory, take it back for the kingdom and for our God. But there's something about the culture and the philosophy of people who are occupying or in occupying force because they have to understand the dynamics of spiritual warfare. And the dynamics of spiritual warfare aren't just about attaining territory, but about developing the philosophy to retain and to hold on to the land that is taken. So he said, I want you to go and I want you to talk to my people about spiritual warfare. And I felt like, and it gave me a revelation that the most violent place for spiritual warfare is the table. And yesterday, that was the bend and the lean of my conversation. But when I finished it, I felt as if my assignment hadn't been accomplished because how do you go and give a master class on whooping and don't do a practical? See, how can you go and talk about spiritual warfare and not necessarily have the time to demonstrate what that looks like, right? Because the kingdom in warfare is always expressive. And so I felt like, man, I didn't really have the time. So I went back and I was just before the Lord last night and I was like, man, Lord, what was the point? To be honest, right? If you're a communicator here, you know that we're our harshest critics when we get back before the Lord and we just want to know that we did the right thing and we're faithful to the assignment. But, but I felt like the Lord's like, okay, I still want you to go out there and teach spiritual warfare. I'm like, what am I going to say? He's like, it's very simple. He's like, share the gospel and preach Jesus. So the conversation is still around an occupying force to where we're about to go to that land. And it's not just a change or a shift in geolocation, but it's an actual assignment for us to go and be an occupying force of the kingdom in that particular region. And the Lord was like, I want you to preach the gospel of Jesus so that when they go there, they will understand how loved they are because the greatest need in our world right now, consistent with what it says about the end time days, is that the love of many has grown cold and our generation is aching for an accurate freeing representation of the love of God as evidenced through yielded vessels, which are proxies of the kingdom and God's love through them. So it's like the most violent conversation you can have around spiritual warfare to a community that I'm sending is to be so rooted and grounded in my love and the revelation of Jesus 
That when that community shows up to get something from them, they don't feel like they are giving in and of themselves, but they understand that they're proxies to my kingdom in the occupation of that particular region and the expansion of God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. So I want to talk to you guys about the love that God has for you, the powerful implications of that love, and I want to base it on this theological concept called the perichoresis. Everybody say perichoresis. So peri, where you get like perimeter, which means around, everything around. And choresis, which is like choreo, which means to call and answer where you get the word uh, choreography. So perichoresis, everybody say perichoresis. Now, this concept is, uh, back in the day, uh, there was uh, basically, the, everybody knew about the deity of God the Father. And everybody knew about the deity of Jesus. But um, there was a specific uh, question mark uh, ethos around the, the deity of the Holy Spirit. People were like, yes, I understand all those things that you're saying, but I don't know, is the Holy Spirit really God? And so there was this man called St. Gregory of Nazianzus. He was the Archbishop of, of Constantinople. And he was one of uh, the Cappadocian fathers. And he was one of the most brilliant orators of his time. Right? He was a skilled, artful like, orator. And he could paint word pictures. And he would provide a lot of framework for specific things. So he then was forefront on, um, on, on, on pneumatology or the study of the Holy Spirit and on, on proving that the Holy Spirit was deity. So then they came up to him with a challenge and they're like, okay, listen, if you are the one who is on the forefront of Trinitarian theology, then we want you to use the words that you have and the intellect that you have to paint an accurate graphic description of the relational dynamic between the three of them, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So basically, they're like, hey, we want you to go get as artsy as you can, draw from the Bible, draw from nature, draw from theology, draw from history, draw from divine inspiration, but we want you to come back and tell us if we were to create, right, an, a representation of this relational dynamic, what does it look like? And so he came, and then he came back, and he coined this term or this theory or this philosophy called the perichoresis. And what the perichoresis was, he said, if you were to stand apart and observe the relational dynamic of the Trinity, you will notice that it's almost like they're embroiled in a dance. He says it's almost like they're embroiled in a dance. It's like the Father is dancing with the Son, and the Son is dancing with the Holy Spirit. And when you think about it, right, when you read everything in the New Testament about this, Jesus is constantly pointing to his Father, and the Father sends the Spirit, and the Spirit reveals Jesus. And there's this beautiful dance between the Trinity that is such an apt representation of who they are. The perichoresis. The dancing God. Woo, come on, somebody. The dancing God. Oh man, when I got that revelation, I was blown away. See, God is the cause and we're the effect. And the effect always mirrors the cause. God is the cause and nature is the effect. And the effect always mirrors the cause. So what, what he was saying and what we see is if I were to call God's dynamic with himself, the dancing God, there has to be evidence in every aspect and nuance of his creation. Listen to this. See, God out of himself. So basically what he's saying is God has always existed in this beautiful dance of deference and love and hope and peace and all things good. And from that place, he creates. That's why the creation will always mirror that. If God is a dancing God, it follows that creation in its most natural manifestation is a dancing creation. That's why when smoke goes up in the air, what happens? It's an intimate dance. That's why when bees communicate, right? What is it? It's a dance. That's why when the wind blows, the leaves start dancing. Come on, Samba. Ooh, that's a sermon right there. Come on. Everything about it. When you look at the water, you can see the nuance of dance and interaction and all of this. Why? Because God is a dancing God. The Bible talks about this, right? Interaction, when you think about it, he's always been in this particular dance. And creation joins him in this dance. 
See, we talked about this ground zero, right? It's literally this right here. We're talking about ground zero of our creation. And in the book of Revelation, it talks about the end times. And there's so much noise. Listen, there's nothing muted about the expression of the kingdom and what this looks like. See, I have profound respect for orthodox gatherings, but when it comes to the most accurate representation of what heaven and eternity in the throne room looks like, it looks like a service at the upper room. Come on. There's flags and colors and there's dancers and there's spontaneous outbursts and there's joy and there's dancing and all of those. And because we are a house that is given to mirror God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, that's why there's such wild expression around our worship. Because we understand that our father is a father that dances our father is a father that sings our father is a father that creates so what does he do right out of the nature out of the perichoresis out of his relational dynamic out of this dance he creates he says let there be and there is so i always imagine that he's going dr strange and stuff and he goes and something comes up and he looks at he's like is that a representation of me and he's like oh yes The wind is dancing. Okay, that's who I am. And then he calls it good because the divine imprint of his goodness is on that thing. And when that thing receives the pleasure of the Father for eternity, it is constantly going to dance. And the waves are constantly going to move because nature is a direct reflection of the nature of God. Do you understand that of all the religions and all the gods, we're not given this stoic God who's sitting on a throne ready to strike thunderbolts. No, we're given this dynamic of a father, a lover, and a bridegroom. All of those contexts that elicit natural creativity and expression. Our God loves to dance. He rejoices over us with singing. And that's why in the most perfect expression of worship, I'm not talking about curated, um, no, I'm not talking about curated spaces. I'm talking about the most natural expressions of worship. You will always find dance. Look at David. He dances. Look at Miriam for warfare. There were always like, how many times when you read the Psalms does it say, come before the Lord with joy and singing and dancing? There is never a separation of the expression of dance from what it looks like. See, because we come from this perichoresis, from a place of the dancing God, a place of intimacy, right? Whenever there's intimacy, that's one of those things. When you think about dance, we're having this conversation. Dance is, is intimate. And from this intimacy, right, we're born there. Dance unites. That's one of the reasons that I love that God has gifted this house with a dancing expression in its worship. And it is so apostolic that a lot of people in different houses and communities, and I know because I go over there, they're like, man, you guys have all these dancers, but it, it always unites the room and it never looks lame and everything. Why? Because it's an apostolic expression and there's such a resonance culturally to what that looks like because it is natural for people to dance. And see, that's why God literally took and entrusted us with this apostolic revelation of dance as he's sending us out into the nations. Because if you haven't noticed, right, the melanated masses, black people, brown people, Asian people, all those are cultures that revolve around dance. I mean, I know we'll catch up because sometimes, you know, half of the song we're still trying to catch up to the beat and clap right and everything. But that's why the Lord has brought us together and says, I want you guys to be on the forefront because if you guys are the apostolic expression of what worship looks like to a generation and pursued to a generation, then the most important aspect of who I am as evidenced by theology and the church fathers is that of dance. This God who loves us extravagantly, ridiculous, and nature screams from the top of his lungs. This dance, this beautiful dance. And when they asked him, okay, we understand this concept. It makes sense. You've proven it. That's why it's a stalwart in theology. They said, okay, now can you make a sign, a graphic representation of what it is? So if you Google the perichoresis or if you see what it is, basically it looks like even the sign of the Trinity. It's kind of been elongated now. But initially it was three interwoven rings with like interplay and everything. It was three circles, perfectly symmetrical and perfectly going in and outside of each other. Circles. Have you guys ever noticed how obsessed nature is with circles? Have you guys ever noticed that when you agitate nature, and it's basically, when you take a pebble and you throw it 
into a brook of water, what happens? Circles, ripples. Have you guys ever noticed that when you chop a tree trunk, circles, right? You see, as a matter of fact, have you ever noticed that when you dive into anything natural, y'all check this out, when you cut any fruit right halfway through the middle, have you guys ever noticed that they, this is what it looks like? Circles, right? Let's go to the next one. See, I'm over here and I was geeking over circles when I got this. Like, have you ever noticed that it's the exact same thing? There's an, it, the, there's an origin source and then it kind of spirals around that. You see that from like zygotes to like uh, snails to that cochlea. That simple spiral circle shell is everywhere around nature. Think about it. Let's go to the next one. Right? Have you ever noticed that even when waves begin to naturally form, it kind of forms around the same pattern around that. It's like when typhoons and everything, it's that simple thing. Come on, let's go to the next one. Right? You look at this, like even this, I, I love, if you're a mathematician, you'll geek out over this. I geek out over this stuff all the time. Right? The Fibonacci sequence, right? the fractals and everything, the human ear, the human face, and all, even the continents, the shape of continents and the hearts of it, it all like the way this folds and everything. You can geek out for eternity over all of these things. No, keep, go, go to the next one real quick. Look at that. Even the helix of our DNA still follows the exact same pattern, right? It's circled and it's all of these things around. Even when you look at the construction of the cell, right? There's a nucleus, it's circular, and then around it there's space, and then there's another circle and everything, everything about it. Let's go to the last one. This is like total geeking out, and I'll stop him, I promise, right? Look at this. The brain cell, it comes from this space, and then it kind of, the universe has the exact same thing. The birth of a cell or the death of a star, the eye and the nebula, all of them have this secular pattern. And I still remember when the Lord gave me this revelation, I was like, where, where does this come from? Wait, why is it that nature has this pattern? And then this is when he gave me this revelation. And I want to be uh, the black Gregor of Nazianzas right now. And I want to reenact and craft for you guys a picture, right? If you were to create something, right, the, 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 the point zero, the space of its origins, it will mirror what it essentially looks like. It will mirror the environment and what it looks like. So we were created in the throne room. That's where all this happens, right? That's where the council of the Godhead in Genesis 1:26 happens. And so what's around it? Let's go to this. Revelation 5 verse 6. Uh, verse 1 to 14. It says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. So there's a lamb right there, right? Let's just do that. Looking as if it had been slain. And then so I'm just going to put that, right? Standing at the center of the throne. Everybody say center. And then encircled by the four living creatures, right? And the elders. So there's like 28 around there. That is the first thing. And then the lamb had seven horns and it talks about this and living creatures and it talks about what it does and everything. It says, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon 10,000, 10,000 upon 10,000 and they encircled the throne. So there's thousands upon 10,000 upon 10,000 upon 10,000 and it creates this right here, the mystery, the mystery circles that we have. And so because of this, so if you literally where to take a cross-section, or if you were to hover, right, as some sanctified drone over what the throne room and the place of where we're created looks like, it would look like this. The same pattern of everything that is natural and that is created. And see, it's crazy because when you think about it, even people that did not know God, even people that did not know God, when they started, it was one of those things that are like all of a sudden, when you look at the most natural things, everything happens in circles. We're having, we kind of geeked out a while back with this conversation with Truby, and I'm glad that he's here. Because we're like, everything that we build in the Western context is around squares and boxes and everything. But when you look at what's natural from the Zulu crawl to the Eskimo hut to the, all, all those things, when our ancestors were building, they would see the circles reflected around them in the pebbles, in the rocks, and all this design. And they would build because everything about creation speaks to this, right? Right here. Creation mirrors this unified, beautiful perichoresis dance of the Father. Right there. Thousands. Can you imagine the harmonies? This is like J. Lu on steroids, y'all. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels not singing, harmonizing, not just with the frequencies that we hear, because we understand that the human ear only hears up to certain frequencies. But with those sanctified ears, now we can hear everything. Can you imagine the crescendo and the chorus and the worship and the wildness and the beauty and the extravagance of our origins context? Whew. 
Circles upon circles upon circles upon circles. And then there's a lamb slain in the center of the throne. And in the center of that lamb is you. In the center of it all is you. Your birthright. You're born into it. Ephesians 2. He raises you up. And he sits you in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. At the center of it all is you. At the center of this extravagance and this mindlessness and all of this beauty is you. See, when I first thought about this, it was just one of those I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Man, that's a dope revelation until I had a son. And then I'm like, oh my goodness, I get it now. See, because my son will never exist a single day outside the context or the confines of my covenant with his mother. He is the direct result of the intimate dance that me and his mother had. And he is born into that context of intimacy, surrounded by all the love in the world and all the joy in the world and all the rejoicing in the world. He is born into it. There's nothing he can do to ever exist outside of that because that was his cradling context. Now, as he gains consciousness and as the enemy tries to whisper and everything, and then that morphs into self-consciousness and then rejecting all the issues that we get, he can choose to cut himself from that love or he can choose to disassociate himself from that love. But naturally and objectively, he will never exist outside the parameters of him and his mother's love for him. And see, the greatest trick of the enemy that he will always do is to try to use objective, objective facts to try to disassociate you from the very thought and the notion of God's love for you. So here's what's interesting. And I say facts because I want to be intentional about the rhetoric and the nomenclature. See, everything in the universe follows a law of subservience. The lesser always bows to the greater. What happens when there's light and darkness? There's no struggle. Instantly, right? When you turn on a light, darkness instantly bows. It's a law. That law supersedes what it looks like. So darkness, there's, it's a fact that there's darkness. But the truth is, light is stronger than darkness. Let me bring it to you, right? It is a fact that cancer kills, right? But the truth of the matter, come on somebody, is that Jesus heals. So when the facts of cancer encounter the truth of the healing nature of Jesus, what happens? Cancer bows because it's a higher law. It's the exact same thing. See, when I hold this right now over here and I just let it go, literally, my hand just falls to God. What dragged it down? Gravity. Gravity is a what? It's a law, right? It's a law. But how am I able to lift it up? It's because there's a greater law, and that is the law of life. Come on. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which sets us free from the law of sin and death. Now, I can choose to submit myself to the facts of that law. Okay, I can come up to my highest ideal and my identity as a son and exist in defiance of those laws because I am submitted to a greater truth and not the avenue of fact. So what the enemy will do, he will try to instill the orphan spirit in you by bringing objective fact as to why you are not loved and God doesn't see you and why you are rejected and why there's all these things. And he will use the very nature of God to try and dissuade you from what that essentially looks like. But if you look at the truth of God's extravagance, if you look at the truth of God's creation, that before you had done anything like Cyril, he says you were born into this personal death. See, God never needed anything or anyone. He creates because he is expressive, because that's what love does. Love expresses itself outwardly. 
right? So all of a sudden, there's this dynamic. Same thing that happened with, uh, with, with Silo. I still remember I was having this conversation and I shared it with, with George. And I was like, George, I don't know, man. I don't think I'm going to be a good, a good dad. I don't know. I'm freaking out. And I was having this conversation with Kevin as well because Kevin just seems like he's having so much fun. I had this conversation with Miller. I was like, y'all, I am freaked out. And I told him it was because I just want to be a good dad. To be honest, it wasn't that. It was a simple fact that, y'all, I married a cool wife, y'all. We had a blast. We had a good thing going. See, my wife is an Enneagram 7, so she's crazy. I mean, she's always pulling me into all these experiences that no self-respecting black person should ever have, right? All of a sudden, we're scuba diving. What is a black man doing under the sea? I don't know, but she dragged me there, right? The other day, we went skydiving in Fiji. What am I? Listen, there's nothing black at 14,000 feet. Not crows, not all the black birds kind of stay close. So there's nothing. Everything is white up there. I promise you all the clouds, the airplanes, not even black hawks fly that high. I was the only black thing over there. It's like, what am I doing here? Someone will be the death of me. But I love those experiences. So we had this beautiful dynamic, right? We're constantly, right, making fun of each other and fun of other people. And we love people watching and we do this. And it's a beautiful dynamic. And I was like, to be honest, I don't want a kid to kind of come into this and to ruin it. If I can be honest. I was like, I found a good thing here, right? But what my point to that end, and he came, and so my point is that is there's all these anxieties within me and I'm whatever, because there is this perfect dynamic of love and acceptance and beauty, and there's all this self-respect and, and mutual respect and mutual dynamic and intimacy, and every good thing you can think of is our craving context. And then as a result and a fruit of our intimacy, this boy comes in. He's born right into the middle of this union. But instead of dividing us, he comes and he becomes the anchoring thing in that. And then all of a sudden, you know what happens? You guys know me. You know your boy. I am an African warrior. I don't dance, y'all. I'm gangster, y'all, okay? No. But, but it's one of those things, I don't dance, I don't sing, I don't do all these things. All these things are stupid because I'm manly and everything. And all of a sudden, this boy comes in with, before he has done anything. Like the Grinch, my heart grows like 10 sizes. And all of a sudden, I don't understand why, but whenever I see him, for his smile and for his joy, I'll start coming up with all the stupidest dances. Right? Like all of a sudden, I'm like the next J. Lu on steroids. I'm making up all these spontaneous songs just so he could give me what is like a, with some semblance of a smile. I know it's not psychological, it's not a smile, but if I can elicit joy in this little being, he hasn't done anything to earn that, y'all. Listen, all he does is eat my money and eat my sleep, y'all. He literally just pees, poops, and purrs. But the love that I have for him, I would give my, lay my life down for this. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I understand it now. See, the enemy and the orphan spirit will try to tell us that our value and our worth and our love in God is only as proportional to how good we are in him. But see, the beauty of this is before we even develop the capacity to sin, the lamb was slain before the foundations of the earth. So he left a wide highway to where when we are born, we were born straight down a matrix shoot right into the center of his love, the center of his affection, and the center of his universe. See, I love what the Holy Spirit was communicating in worship today, talking about the extravagance of God's love. Do you understand that everything in nature is an extravagant expression of who God is? Nature. You look at the sands. Can you count the sand grains when you go to the beach? No. Snowflakes. Each one an, instru an, an, an intricate work of artistry. Right? Multiple. Like trees. The nature of God. No sense of self-awareness. They'll have the most lustrous trees ever, but, uh, leaves ever. But when it's time, when the season changes, don't hold on to a single one. They let it go. The abundance of God. The provision of God completely aware and secure in God's ability and his beauty and his bounty and his harvest. But listen, that's not even the favorite part. Have you ever noticed that everything about nature is expressive? Trees, right? They give out like, a, oh, flowers, smells, right? Birds, it's music. It's all this thing. All of those things are expressive. When you look at it, right? The wind, the smells, the sounds and everything. So God creates this expressive universe of outputs. God himself is the ultimate expressive being. 
Things just flow out of him. Love, joy, peace, everything just flows out of him. He is an expressive being. So he creates an expressive universe as an expressive being, and the, everything in nature is expressive except us. Then he creates us. And what does he make man? What are all the faculties and the modalities for our interaction with the world? Inputs or outputs? Touch, taste, smell, sight. He makes us as a being of inputs. And then he puts us in a universe of outputs so that we can thoroughly enjoy his nature. Come on, preach with me, baby. He's over there. He's like, come on, daddy, let's go. He puts us in the middle of this garden. Perfect smells, perfect sounds, and perfect everything. And he was like, hey, I'm not even going to worry about making sure that you're the one that gives out. I just want you to be a being of reception. When we look at my son, when you look at newborns, you understand everything about the natural development of who they are is just inputs. They're just sponges. You guys have heard this. The beauty of this God. He says, I'm going to give you a nose, and I'm going to make the world around you a sense of pleasant smells. I'm going to put birds that sing, and then I'm going to give you ears to enjoy it. And at the center of it all, in the cool of the day, I will show up, and I will expressively have union and communion with you. And you can enjoy all the love and the peace and the grace. And if you don't know, if you know, you know this, because if you've ever been in a worship service where God is, you're just laid wide open. Your heart is wide open. And you're just receiving the objective and subjective goodness of God. And the orphan spirit will always try to take that away from you. See, I hate the orphan spirit. Because when the Lord set me free from addiction, that was broken off of me. But for the next decade or so, I struggled with crippling insecurity. Because I had such a, a keen awareness of how God, good God had been to me. And how much he loved me. And when the devil could not objectively take those truths away. Then he started to make me feel insecure. Like I wasn't worthy of that love. When God would bless me with open doors and send me into rooms as his ambassador... The enemy would elicit thoughts in me that made me feel like I had the imposter syndrome. See, there's this statement. Um, actually, let me read it real quick. And if you guys don't mind, can we get um, the worship team uh, back up here? Because we're going to do something. But there's a man called Carter G. Woodson. And uh, I believe this book is essential reading for anyone who will have to do ministry. The context was justice. But I think the concept is sound in anyone that has to do ministry. Because the very nature of sin... And its expression is disenfranchisement. Whenever you are in sin, you will always be marginalized. And you can never show up fully. So he wrote this, and I thought that was the most, one of the most profound spiritual truths ever. This is what he says, Carter G. Woodson. He says, if you can control a man's thinking, you do not have to worry about his action. When you determine what a man shall think, you do not have to concern yourself about what he will do. If you make a man feel that he is inferior, you do not have to compel him to accept an inferior status, for he will seek it himself. If you make a man think he is justly, listen, justly, that means if you make someone think it is just, if you make a man feel that he is justly an outcast, you do not have to order him to the back door. He will go without being told. And if there is no back door, his very nature will demand one. So what the enemy does is he throws up all these objective facts about God cannot love you because you were born out of wedlock, right? God cannot have had a plan for you because you are a mistake. You do not have the sovereignty of Christ dwelling on the inside of you because you are of a darker pigmentation. Because you were born in this particular skin, or in this particular culture, or in this particular context, or in this particular demographic, you are less than the imago day in you is diminished and so he crafts this world of chaos so that you can literally off yourself disassociate yourself from the love of God and move yourself out of the center of all his emotions and affections until you're standing and living on the periphery because his strategy then is always isolation and in isolation he can preach a contrary gospel to that of acceptance and everything and he can get you to then if he can make you believe that you have 
no birthright and no right in all things beautiful and pure and righteous and kind, then the action, sin, will just be the natural byproduct of you buying into, the sins will be a natural byproduct of you buying into the belief system of sins. And that's what all the orphan spirit is. It's just lies that have come together to form an intricate cognitive framework for you to buy into. And that's why in the, in the Zulu, in the Debele context, where I come from, whenever it talks about spiritual warfare and it talks about possession, it's never about what comes into or over or takes over you. But the, the word, the nomenclature around the world, the word itself is what you have come into agreement with. Because then that empowers and it fuels your actions and everything. And I felt like the word of the Lord to you guys is to say, hey, I want to put the promise of my goodness and my love in all of the chaos that you exist in, in all of the pain that you exist in, in all of the bondage that you exist in. And the most beautiful picture of what this is, is God creates this perfect world and then he starts going haywire and he sends a flood and he wipes it out and he leaves just one man. We know what happens, right? Because even though this man had been spared, whenever you are in the face of trauma, it leaves residue. And so I can almost think, it's not in the Bible, but I can almost think that Noah was always going, ah, how long before I am taken out myself? So God says, listen, here's what I'm going to do. When you see all this chaos and when you see the threat of, 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 of destruction and when you see all of those things, I am going to put a promise in the middle of that chaos and all that destruction. When you see that, I want you to know that at the end of it, you're still the center of my affection and my attention. And what did he do? What did he give? What sign did he give? Rainbow. Y'all check this out. I don't know if you guys knew this, but this is what a rainbow actually looks like. If we can throw that up there. See, we only see half of it because a rainbow is only reflected on the rain. And so we only see half of it and the horizon cuts all of it. But people, you can see video after video, people on planes, on mountaintops can see the full rainbow and the rainbow is a perfect circle. And here's what's crazy, y'all. They say the rarest of rainbows is like a three ring rainbow. Some people have seen two ring rainbows, but they say the rarest is a three ring rainbow and it only appears after the worst devastation when it comes to storms. So God is saying, hey, in the middle of that, I'm going to set a promise of my perichoresis, of the beauty of nature, of this divine circle. And I'm going to remind you that even though there's chaos and destruction and everything happening around you, that is where you are. And one of the most powerful songs, if we can stand up, that I subjectively believe has ever come out of this house is a song that Hannah Sheets wrote. And I still remember the first time I ever heard it I just started bawling because I was rocked by this revelation. And I'm going to murder this and, and, and kind of sing it, but the chorus just literally goes, Oh, oh, I was made for the center of your love. Oh, oh. I was made for the center of your love. And I still remember the first time, and I remember the first time I heard that. Uh, I have been struggling with so much crippling rejection and uh, everything that God had given me as a gift, the way my mind works and, and, and my intellect and everything was such a burden in every room that I was in. And I was like, man, I gotta fix this. I gotta, nobody likes to know it all. And I started buying into every lying philosophy around that and everything. I'd never, I'd never been around people like Rev Kev who, who, who willed intellect with humility. I'd never been around this. And, and I still remember I was visiting and I heard that song. And then all of a sudden, I was brought to this profound revelation that there's intentionality about everything about who I am. And at the end of the day, my place of existence, my rightful place as a son and daughter is at the center of his love. And when you understand that, it doesn't matter if he sends you to Oak Cliff or North Dallas or whatever it is. When people come and you can tell that they're crippled by the orphan spirit, because that's what the orphan spirit does. Even if people can come into your, orphans will steal from their home. And then the enemy will get them on shame. 
I love what Rev Kev said yesterday, and he was like, uh, he was talking about the most, the most powerful thing about shame is that it robs you of the power of joy. And the most powerful thing, the most profound thing my son can do for me is be joyful in my presence. That's all I need from him. And so here's what I want to say as they lead us in worship. If you're in this room right now and you've never encountered a radical revelation of God's love, a marking revelation of who you are to Him and how much He loved you. If nature and the sacrifice of Jesus may be objective truths, but they have not become subjective and transformative truths that clue you to that. I feel like even based on the worship that happened this morning, there's an invitation to encounter with the radical love of God. So if you're in this room and you do not know Jesus, or if you're in the overflow and you do not know Jesus, or if you're out um, watching this, or wherever you are, whenever you will watch this and you do not know Jesus, I stand as a harbinger of good news to tell you that He literally built the world to show you how much He loves you. And that He's waiting for you. And that you wouldn't be called lost if you didn't belong at first. Nobody goes shopping with the lost and found. All the things that are in there have belonged and you are lost because you belong and daddy needs you home this instant and he has sent me as the elder brother to say we can't eat until you get there come back home there's love waiting for you there's acceptance waiting for you and if that's you it's very simple listen we see this with the prodigal it doesn't have to be an elaborate prayer or whatever you just have to believe that Jesus Christ the brother willingly laid himself down because heaven missed you and our family missed you. And if you believe that Jesus died, that all your sin is, and, and you believe he was resurrected so you could live a life of resurrection power, then God can meet you right where you are. He's a father. Listen, the last thing I'll say, my, my son, his mother and I have postured ourselves to lean into everything that he says. He doesn't have to say anything perfectly. We are postured to lean into, what is that? Da, 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 da. What, you want water? You want, what do you want? That's how the Father is towards us. So you don't have to say the perfect prayer, the perfect words. All you have to say is, Dad, I'm sorry, and I want to come home. And the second group of people, if you're in this place and you're just like, I've just never experienced it, or it's been a while since I experienced it, I want to tell you that God wants to, to resurrect that. He wants to encounter you again in this place as they lead us in worship. So can we just close our hands and put our, uh, sorry, close our eyes and put our hands out in front of us? And so Father, we just pray for every son and a daughter that is living like a pauper and living like an orphan. We thank you that you've made every provision for them to bring them back home. So if that's you, I just want you to say, Father, I want to come home, forgive all of my sin. I have identified with a nature that is not my own. I'm a sinner. Forgive me and cleanse me with the blood of Jesus and bring me into this fellowship, the fellowship of love, the fellowship of the perichoresis. And if you're in this place right now and you just need a radical, radical encounter with the love of God, as they lead us in this song and in this space of worship, if you want, you can come up here and everything, but just say, Lord, once again, give me a revelation, a marking revelation, because the nations will come knocking on my door to see what it seems like to be loved. So encounter us once more, Holy Spirit, with the love of the Father, in Jesus' name. Prayer team, if you're up here, you guys can kind of come up here and line up, and if you guys are just like, hey, I, I, I need this encounter, I need someone to help pray with me, you can just approach the prayer team. If you want to come over here, you can, but wherever you are, just contend for that which is already yours, a radical revelation of God's love for y'all. God bless you guys.